Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Hi, welcome to the Nine Line Podcast. I'm your host, John Archiquette. Joining me, as always, is Joshua Gray. This is a momentous occasion, John. It's momentous because the Golden Knights are in the semifinals. Well, there is that, yes. But this isn't a hockey podcast, Okay, unfortunately. (laughs) I think we would both enjoy it a lot more if it was. However, this is our... This is our one year anniversary. This is like we've we've done a full year of this show. Is it, is it bad that I forgot our anniversary, Josh? <laughs> as long as you bring me flowers to make up for it, Josh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, happy anniversary. And uh, joining us for our one year anniversary, we have a special returning guest and we have a first time guest with us. We have Dr. Nicole Anders with us. She is a clinical psychologist and, the, uh, and a PTSD specialist. And we also have with us a very special guest for the first time. This is Candace Bodie, and she is our suicide prevention coordinator. Welcome, ladies. Thank, Thank you. And uh, Dr. Anders, real quick, I just want to say congratulations. Last time you were with us, I think it was last August. Yes. And uh, you were expecting, and now you have a... And now I'm no longer expecting. <laughs> the arrival has arrived. I have two little boys, and I am tired, which is why I have my latte right here. <laughs> I have my coffee, just and I have no excuse for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, So our topic today that we're going to go over, if you haven't been able to figure it out, um, is PTSD and suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now that we're kind of emerging from our lockdown and stepping out into the world for the first time for some of us, uh, you know, mental health is at the top, at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And here at the VA, suicide prevention is one of our top priorities. It has been pre-pandemic and it remains such now. Um, But, you know... With people emerging from the lockdown and things like that, there's a lot of people who are unsure how to handle mental health. Um, are you guys, you know, what kind of stuff are you seeing now um, with veterans now that the pandemic is over? Well, as, as it's, you know, kind of over-ish. Yeah, yeah. over-ish. <laughs> um, and, you know, I love this question. When I came today, I thought about a session I just had yesterday. And this is something that's reoccurring with a lot of sessions. So I'm meeting with veterans who are saying, I'm here to see you because during the lockdown, during the time when I couldn't leave my house, things were closed, I lost my job, you know, fill in the blanks, and I was just at home, I had a lot of time. And sometimes the time is good because people are picking up hobbies and spending more time with their Mm -hmm. family, so there's these blessings in disguise, essentially. But what's happening for a lot of our veterans is they don't have their distraction mechanisms in place, so they have a lot of time to think about their lives for better or worse, right? They have a lot of time to think about their traumas and things they've done, things they regret. They have a lot of time to feel lonely if they are alone in their home or or these kind of things. And so I've noticed that a lot of people have come to therapy saying, I knew that I needed to come because during this time, the trauma from 2005 or from whatever, that resurfaced for me. And I didn't, I couldn't go to work because I lost my job. And and I wasn't distracted. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's bringing people in, which is a good thing. But I'm, I'm thinking about all the people who, you know, it did resurface these traumas and they aren't coming in yet. So have you noticed, and this is something that I've seen a lot. I spent a lot of time on the Internet, Reddit, stuff like that. Now that people are getting out more, people seem to have forgotten 
how to act socially <laughs> around people. And you see videos where people get like the slightest slight or perceived slight and they just lose their minds and mm. just snap on people. Have you seen now that people are starting to emerge that that things like that have become an issue where where people are like I don't know, I got so used to being alone, I don't know how to cope being around people anymore. Yeah. Have you seen that? I mean, absolutely. I feel like you know, in some ways and we can probably talk about this later too, the pandemic especially those early days, was a cultural It was a trauma for us all in, in the world. And so what happens when a trauma occurs afterwards, our body gets into fight, flight, or freeze. And so post-trauma, right, people have these reactions. So maybe they're in public and they're still hypervigilant. They're still on alert. There's still a lot of fear. The virus is not over, you know. And so that's within them. And they haven't socialized in a while, so maybe they fight, right? Someone slights them or, you know, brushes by them and, oh, my gosh, it's a big fight. Or they flight, run back, you know, get to the grocery store and turn their car around. That happened to one of my patients. <laughs> or freeze, oh, I can go out now, but I'm still frozen at home. So we are definitely seeing a lot of that. It's almost like an adjustment period. You know, they had to adjust to the change of going virtual and staying at home. Now it's a whole nother adjustment to come back into the office, to be out in the community. So I think that it definitely impacts, you know, our moods when we have to make so many changes in such a short period of time. So I mean, I feel it. I, let's yep. normalize it. I feel it. You know, mm -hmm. we are still on like a... Uh, telehealth schedule so and behavioral health anyways uh, our staff is working half time at home half time yep. in the office and that's for me that's two days a week but those two days a week I come into the hospital and I feel the energy I feel very stimulated the social interaction yep. and um, I go home you know because of course I have kids too but I go home more <laughs> tired than than before so well, and like you said, I think it really depends on, on you know, how the person individually handled mm -hmm. the pandemic. Um, you know, myself, I, you know, we were working in the office most days and, you know, I had a healthy balance of work and life despite the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, my mom, for example, I mean, she's retired and she's alone. And I know that she's a little bit of a hypochondriac and already kind of didn't like, you know, the risk of getting sick to begin with. Mm -hmm. So she's had a very hard time kind of tiptoeing back into the water. Mm -hmm. um, as and she was, you know, immediately was quick to get her vaccine, and she still is very, very timid about stepping back into the world. So I think for a lot of people who may not have had a great balance of work and life to begin with, may have a harder time readjusting. I agree. Yeah, it depends on everyone's circumstances and you know their triggers and their how they view the world, and um, we're seeing it on a huge, huge spectrum. But I think it's safe to say no one is unaffected. Mm -hmm. So normalizing the fact that anyone listening, if you feel affected, it's totally normal. Um, but there's definitely a scale of people who are more severely, you know, anxious to reenter the world. Mm -hmm. Well, and as you you talked about with PTSD with this, and you know, for a lot of veterans who are already dealing with PTSD, you know, this could be something that could exacerbate issues they already have. Um, but you know, is could the seclusion caused by the pandemic be a traumatic event in itself that could have repercussions later on down the road? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the pandemic was a trauma, is a trauma um, for so many different reasons. And the seclusion part, like being alone, was is and was very scary. And I'm sure you can touch on the suicide um, prevention piece and what you've seen. But, you know, in terms of other mental health pieces, 
you know, substance use went up, um, depression rates went up, anxiety went up, like all these things went up because people are alone and they don't know how to deal with that. We're not meant to be alone in this world. Yep. That's a good point. Because I think with suicide prevention, one of the things that we talk about, or one of the risk factors even, is a sense of no connectedness, not mm-hmm. being connected to people. So being isolated certainly can increase a risk factor. I will say, though, with the limited data that we have right now, it didn't show any significance in terms of suicide attempts or or deaths by suicide at this point with the limited research that we have. But um, definitely encouraging making connections. In fact, the VA has a website called Make the Connection. It's an awesome website where if folks are at home and they're feeling isolated, you can log onto this website and actually identify specific peers um, that you can connect with. So you can share each other's stories. It's a resource for families, friends. So it's an excellent resource in terms of us kind of adjusting to being isolated at home and what can we do? How can we make connections and feel like we're connected with folks? You know, you, you talk about like the statistically there didn't seem to be much of a variance. I think that's one of those things where it's very beneficial where we have all of those groups that we had before, like the PTSD yes. groups, and they all went virtual. Yep. So okay, I'm in my house, I'm 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 by myself, but I still have I still have my battle brothers here with that's me right. and I can at least talk to them via Zoom and things like that. So um I, I think that's a, a really big benefit. Yep. Yeah. And I want about the other side of it, not um, I hope I didn't cut you up, but in terms of those folks who may have not been connected with folks and the fact that we did have a virtual opportunity may have given those people who normally may not even access care an opportunity to access care at home. So I think it could have worked out both ways. We just kind of don't know yet. Well, and that was one thing I kind of wanted to touch on with, with suicide prevention. You guys do a lot of outreach, right? That's, I mean, that's a big portion of your kind of preventative measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of that was restricted during the pandemic? I think the pandemic restricted how we facilitate healthcare in a lot of ways, and especially with outreach. I mean, it was our goal to maintain safety of folks. So we had to think about it ways outside the box. One of the things that we do in uh, suicide prevention is called Caring Communications. It's actually a mailing program. So although traditionally outreach for us looks like we're actually in the community, we're shaking hands, we're giving out items, suicide prevention materials, and um, with us kind of converting to more of at home, we sent out mailers, we outreached, we did virtual trainings with community partners. So that didn't stop. We actually all just kind of adjusted. But I think for the veterans, um, I'd be really excited for us to get back out and actually make a face-to-face connection. But we made the adjustments. You know, you talk about doing that scrambling and having to adjust and everything. Now that we're kind of on the, the downslope, hopefully, right. how many of those things do you think you're going to keep in place and, and move forward with and kind of... it. it gave you an opportunity to go, wow, we we can do this so much better. Absolutely. So right now, one of the things that I'm very um, happy about is, you know, we have more rural outreach. So we have those areas that were untouched in some of our areas like Laughlin and Pahrump. So being able to talk to our community partners, being part of the governor's challenge um, allows us to work with those partners. So I'm hoping that those type of outreach um, or community meetings will go on like that because it'll give us all the opportunities to continue to meet. Um, but in terms of face-to-face, I really will be glad to actually be able to actually go out to those rural communities and actually see veterans again. 
we have a lot of materials. You know, suicide prevention is good for those folks who don't know. We actually are a healthcare system that distributes firearms, I'm sorry, gun locks for firearms. So we're really excited about getting back out there and just increasing awareness, giving out items, tangible items that people can use. Specifically with the uh, with the gun locks, are, are you seeing a high demand with those? Uh, I know that you know during the early parts of the pandemic, we saw firearm sales kind of go through the roof nationally. So I don't know is, is that has that been something that's been in high demand? Well, you know, I don't know really, you know, statistically how many we've actually given out uh, right now. But I will tell you that in general, we frequently give out. Uh, gun locks for firearms because I think lethal means safety is one of those big prevention methods that we can use to help veterans. It goes a long way with our veterans. Um, I know that there are sometimes concerns about what the VA is doing in terms of fire um, gun locks and firearms. Are we trying to restrict access? We're really just having to have good conversations about lethal means safety, how to store your firearms to keep veterans and family members safe. We frequently give those out, not just to veterans, but to family members as well, service members. So we have a good supply. The VA has been really good to us in terms of having um, access to those. So we're really happy to give those out at any opportunity we can. So we actually just recently, I think in the last couple of weeks, had um, uh, Firearm Safety Day. Mm-hmm. And um, you know we, we shared some, some public service announcements that were put out nationally. Um, about our our gunlock program, and yes. you know, we when we share things like that, we get a little pushback sometimes from veterans mm-hmm. um, about you know, well, how is that going to help me keep me safe? So you know, from somebody who who deals with this on a regular basis, right. what is the psychology behind how a gunlock may prevent suicide? Well, I think we have to think about it in this context. Uh, about half of the veterans that half of veterans um, have access to firearms, but only about one in three actually follow the recommendations in terms of self sto- um, safe storage. So when we think about how firearms can keep you safe, the research shows, there was a research project once that showed, there are about estimated about 71% of veterans who took action from the time the actual thought of suicide came into their mind until they actually took action was about an hour. So if we think about safe storage, Um, The idea is that if we can put some distance and space between when the person actually has that thought, that suicidal intent or that immediate crisis, from them actually being able to put their hands on a firearms, we've gone a long way in preventing suicide. So it's about keeping your ammunition and your firearms separate. It's about safely locking up your uh, your firearms so that your family members won't have access. It's not about just really out of sight, out of mind. That really doesn't work, you know. It's about actually storing the firearms so that there's some distance between when that thought comes. Because the research does show that if we can get past that immediate crisis or that idea, that suicidal crisis at that moment, um, once it passes, we've really prevented suicide, a death by suicide. And the research shows that most people who have attempts don't actually go on to die by suicide, the majority. So we just want to prevent- It helps with the impulsivity. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point. Yep. So having access right there is um, not what we want. We want to make sure the ammunition is stored separately. We want to make sure the firearms are locked up. We have trainings. We have community toolkits. The VA actually established this whole firearm safety toolkit that communities can use to increase awareness in their community. So we're really um, big on having safe messaging, talking about firearms. 
That's, that's a very important part of outreach. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with Dr. Anders and Candace Bodie. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. I didn't want to talk. She just sat with me. That was all I really needed. We got back. One day he called me out of the blue. And it's comforting to know that I always can count on him to have my back. She called me from time to time. I really didn't think I needed any help. It took me from being really depressed to feeling like somebody cared to give me some hope. Just that one text. Be there. Your call. Your presence. Your words. Your support. Be there and help save a life. Learn more about preventing suicide at VeteransCrisisLine.net. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Bro- Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can. But it's just as important to take time for yourself. AARP can help. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related healthcare news and information. Here's your hosts, John Archiquette and Joshua Gray. Welcome back to The Nine Line. John Josh here with Dr. Anders and Candace Bodie from our Suicide Prevention Program. Welcome back, ladies and Josh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so... One of the topics that we were, you know, wanting to talk about post-pandemic was the effect on mental health. And for veterans who may have been hesitant about coming in for in-person care at the VA or any of our clinics, um, may be looking to come in now to discuss some mental health issues. And, you know, if someone were to present to, we'll say the VA Medical Center here, you know, they don't have an appointment, so they show up to the ED or they just show up to the mental health building and they, you know, they want to talk about some issues, you know, what's the process that they would go through? Okay. So, you know, I think there are different scenarios. So if, if using the scenario that you just described, if a veteran just came in because they just wanted help, they just wanted to talk, there are different access points that we have here. You certainly can come through the emergency department and be seen there or mental health has walk-in at our medical center or any of our primary care clinics. So depending on what the veteran's crisis is, um, it's gonna determine the next steps. So if someone is just depressed, perhaps there can be a therapist there that can speak with them or a prescriber that can pref- that can prescribe some medication just to start them off until they're seen by a permanent provider. But let's just say if someone is in more of a severe crisis where they've really been feeling suicidal, they've been feeling depressed, perhaps their symptoms of PTSD have increased and they kind of know that they need to check in with someone. 
that may be someone who may want to voluntarily um, be admitted if they meet uh, the criteria for a hospitalization. And veterans can certainly do that. You know, in fact, it's one of the things I encourage. You know, we have a whole healthcare system that's dedicated to veterans. And so why, why wouldn't you come mm -hmm. if you needed help to the people who actually specialize and care for you? So certainly they can come into the emergency room, be seen and evaluated. If they meet the criteria, they could perhaps be hospitalized inpatient for some time. Now, we can be a stubborn bunch, veterans. Okay. And right. sometimes <laughs> we don't really necessarily want to identify when we have problems. Okay. And sometimes it takes a third party, whether it's a family member or a friend, mm -hmm. a spouse, to you know bring them in and you know kind of help give them that little push. Um, what what can the VA do when a veteran isn't necessarily willing, but also you know definitely presents signs of mental health issues? Right. So here's the thing, and I'm glad that you brought up that point because I have an excellent resource that I want to talk about. But you know there is criteria, so I just want to put this out there and address the elephant in the room. There's certain criteria that requires the vet, the VA to actually act on and hospitalize someone or get them treatment involuntarily. But most times, um, that's not the case. You know, if a veteran's not in a crisis, then we just provide that brief care uh, for veterans. But back to the point that you made about family members and sometimes veterans being a stubborn bunch, there's a resource the VA has created called Coaching Into Care. You know, most times when veterans aren't doing well, it's not us at the VA who sees them, it's the family and friends who see it first. And if a veteran doesn't want to come into the healthcare system, meaning they're not a danger to themselves, they're not a danger to others, we can't force them in. But Coaching Into Care is a great resource. It's for family and friends, they can call a 1-800 number about 12, um, from 8 a.m., I believe, till 8 p.m. And they are able to actually schedule with a provider to talk to them, the family and friend, specifically about their loved one. So the VA representative actually comes up with a plan, works with the family to help coach a veteran into care. So they give them the wor words to use or perhaps techniques to use to encourage a veteran to come in to actually see us. So it's a great resource that folks should check out. So for, for both of you, um, you, know, you talk about that when you see somebody who from a professional standpoint could really use some help and, and they don't want it. How frustrating mm. is that for, for each of you? Well, I mean... <clears throat> I wouldn't use the word frustrated because I think as a clinical psychologist, I see what's behind that. I see the fear. I see the, you know, maybe they've been betrayed in the past and they're not trusting. I see like the pain. I see the sadness. And so for me, being able to just really feel and see that as their provider, it doesn't, it it prevents me from getting frustrated. If someone's getting aggressive with me, it might be the only time I'm getting frustrated. But typically people, and even if they're aggressive, I can see what's behind that. So what will happen is if there is resistance and during a therapy session we're seeing and we're taught as providers to ask straight questions are you thinking about hurting yourself how are you going to do it right we don't beat around the bush we don't sugarcoat and that's really important because we're not afraid to talk about it so we don't want our veterans to be yep. afraid to talk about it because there might be that shame piece and they might feel afraid to talk about it that's right. but as soon as we're talking with them and we kind of sense you know, that there are these triggers and these signs and these warnings that maybe hospitalization would be a good idea. And they do tell us that they're thinking about hurting themselves and they do have a plan and, you know, the list goes on. We, you know, at that moment, I kind of say to myself, 
my goal for the rest of the day, whether it takes me five minutes or five hours, is to make sure this veteran is safe and get them help. So I think we all kind of go into that mode and we, we find that patience within us. We, we don't get frustrated and we say, okay, let's talk about why you don't want to go. What are the resistances? What are the fears? And my goal as a therapist is to always try to get them to do it voluntarily. Of course we, and maybe you can speak to this, yeah. have ways to um, have them go involuntarily, which I think a lot of people are afraid of and that's why they don't want to speak up. And so, yes, we're not going to lie and say we can't, you know, make that happen, but 95% or more of people that I've personally worked with have, we've gotten to a point where they say, you know what, you're right, I'll go, you know, and let's do this together. And it's, I haven't really had to do too much of, you know, using the powers that we have or whatever to get them to go. Um, yep. I agree with that. I, I think going back to what Dr. Anders says, I don't think it's frustrating. I think it actually uh, deepens our empathy for veterans. I mean, if you think about it, um, another anniversary, I'm celebrating 14 years serving veterans in the Department of Veteran Affairs. And I can tell you early on in my career, how many Vietnam veterans I saw that had never access care, you know? And for me, it was all about being in that moment and really accepting that someone actually is coming in for care because there's a number of reasons they don't come in. You can think about the treatment or Vietnam veterans returning back. So there's a number of reasons why veterans don't access care. Sometimes the stigma that's associated with um, accessing care or mental health services, it really um, can steer some people away. So having podcasts like this having discussions that makes, like Dr. Anders says, normalizes access and mental health care, I think goes a long way with helping our veterans to understand that we're here for them. And it's really about helping them get through their crisis, the experiences and all the unique experiences that they shared, especially, especially, excuse me, serving in combat. You know, it's really something that we're here for. And I think it just makes us want to help them more. So say you've made a breakthrough with a veteran and you've you've broken through that wall and, you know, they they admit that, you know, I, I have suicidal ideation. I have, you know, I have these deep seated issues right. and, you know, they agree maybe hospitalization would be the best route. What typically what does the time frame of treatment look like, um, you know, inpatient activity, things like that? Yeah. So the first step is getting them to that inpatient. And I just want to say we never leave them alone. Right. right. I will personally cancel, you know, like, like I said, cancel the rest of my day. I will walk them to the next step, right. uh, which for me in mental health would be taking them to the emergency room to be evaluated, to then be transferred up um, to our unit on the second floor, which is our acute unit. And someone can stay there for I think the maximum stay is seven days. Do you know? It, it, it can it can it varies. It really mm -hmm. varies. Some veterans are there much longer because, like Doctor Ender said, it's an acute um, setting and it's more for stabilization. So I think when we talk about the the episode of care and how that looks, they're accessing care. They're being stabilized in order to have next steps. So whatever their providers think about in terms of their long-term treatment plan. So when we talk about veterans who have PTSD, there are residential programs that may be appropriate, but getting them here in the hospital is more about stabilizing them, getting them prepared to go on to the next steps. It's only short-term. It can be seven days. Sometimes it can be longer. 
Um, it just depends on the treatment plan. And again, it's about the veteran feeling better. And keeping them safe. Keeping right? them We're safe. talking about safety here. Right. It is about keeping them safe. Just the same way a gun lock is a buffer. Right. Maybe keeping someone here. And it doesn't have to be the full seven days. So not to scare anyone with that. It can be as short as, you know, two or three days. Yeah. But keeping them safe in an environment where they're not going to act on these, you know, act impulsively on these thoughts and, and maybe hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. So when deciding, you know, whether they can say that they should say this full seven days or say 48 hours, you know, what really is the the key determining factor whether or not they have to stay that, that you know, extended period of time? Mm-hmm. I think that's really more individual. Uh, that's decided by the treatment team based on individual symptoms. I mean, you know, it depends on why a com- person comes in. If they say they they came in because they were having thoughts about suicide, have those suicide thoughts subsided? Have we increased protective factors? Meaning, have we gotten them treatment? Um, do we have them housing? Do we have them engaged with an addiction treatment program? It's really about how much we can stabilize them and the risk factors reduce while they're here. So I think it's case by case, depending on why they're here, symptoms. Yeah, and do they have a plan, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And by plan, a safety plan. Mm-hmm. Do we now have a plan that looks like, okay, this these thoughts might happen again. Just because mm-hmm. you come here for two days and then we discharge sure. you doesn't mean it's not going to happen again. So our entire goal before discharge is stabilization, mm-hmm. but also prevention. What happens when this happens next week or next month? What's the plan so you don't get to this place and, and maybe have to be checked in? What kind of you know prevention methods do you have for access to lethal means? You know, do you have the ability to mm-hmm. to restrict a, a veterans, you know, yeah. say they're a veteran who has a, you know, they have the Second Amendment right, they can own a firearm, mm-hmm. they haven't committed any crimes. Do you have the ability to, you know, tell them or, you know, tell Las Vegas police and say, hey, like, we need to make sure this person doesn't have a firearm at home? Well, I'll say this. Um Normally in our healthcare system, that's not our goal. Our goal is about stabilization. So I think we have to separate the two. Although I think every state has individual laws um, that govern how the, how we restrict access for guns. I can tell you with here at our healthcare system, the goal is not to necessarily restrict access, but it's about just, again, maintaining safety, safe uh, risk mitigation. So involving family members, perhaps that may be able to safely store a firearm with themselves. But again, that's a treatment plan. That's a collaborative plan with the provider, the veteran. And then we have to separate it out from the legal issue. So of course, there are always legal avenues that can be taken. But in the healthcare system, we really focus on safety, risk mitigation, and just really firearm safe storage. Now, if someone, you know, a lot of times, I'm sure you know that, you know, mental health and substance abuse go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And Sometimes a veteran may present themselves to the VA while under the influence of, you know, any number of substances, whether they're illegal or illegal. Um, How do you properly, you know, screen somebody when they may not be in their right state of mind? We are good detectors for that. (laughs) Um, I think... (laughs) I think it, it, you know, working with substance use as often as we do here in mental health, it it's typically very clear when someone is not um, sober, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. And so, again, just like with suicide, we ask. I will ask people, "Have you used today? When's the last time you used?" I mean, that is a question when someone presents in any type of crisis. That is one of our top five questions to talk about substance use, and so it gets asked. Um, and of course, a veteran could could lie or, or deceive, mm-hmm. but 
we typically can see or, or we know. Um, and a lot of times they don't lie and deceive. They tell us, hey, I drank an hour ago. Mm-hmm. And we don't turn them away for that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay. We welcome them in whatever state they're in. It just will be maybe an added layer of what we need to do to get them help. Um, we, I typically won't have, you know, a trauma processing therapy right. session with a veteran who is under the influence. But I will say, okay, I'm really glad you came. Let's talk about what we can talk about in this in this state of mind that you're in and get you the next step of care. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think even with suicide risk too, we sometimes if 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 veterans are under the influence, you can't make a good assessment at that time. So you stabilize. It goes back to our, our hospitalization process. If you can stabilize and do a further assessment later, that's the best thing to do. But it's going back to safety. What are the risk factors right then? So if a veteran comes into the healthcare system, clearly they may need detox if that's the case. If it's substance abuse, then we help them detox. And we do assessments and screenings later. Of course, they have labs in the emergency department. There's a number of things that they can do to determine if a veteran is you know, acutely intoxicated. But I think, again, it's going back to safety, making sure that they're stabilized before they leave here. So if a veteran checks themselves in, goes through, say they go through inpatient, they're here for the full seven days and, you know, mental health deems that this person is, you know, well enough to be on their own, you know, say they've got a plan for care and they're released, you know, to family members or something like that. What's the follow-up process like? Yeah. So we have a rule that they have to, before they leave, they have to have usually multiple appointments already set and it has to be within the Uh, next, I think, seven days. Mm -hmm. So they leave on a Monday knowing they have an appointment with a psychiatrist on a Wednesday and a therapist on a Tuesday and and the list goes on. Sometimes they don't leave and go to outpatient care in that way. A lot of times while they're here in the acute unit, we will work on finding an inpatient program for them. I know we, we here have um, it's LVR3. We have our domicile here um, that works on substance use and, and trauma. But we have so many across the country and other VAs that we, you know, will um, send people to and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So they will not leave here without a very clear plan of what's next and what does this look like. And we also have some follow-up built in actually into our system here where the social worker calls from the inpatient unit, um, a scheduled appointment after they discharge, just to make sure that they're connected with services. Um, We also have our mental health treatment coordinators that will also follow up with veterans. So just like Dr. Anders said, when a veteran leaves the healthcare system, they should be leaving with some type of follow-up appointment scheduled so that they'll have a plan for when they discharge. And you follow up with people a lot too. Yes, we do. If a veteran is actually flagged as a high risk for suicide when they leave Mm. uh, our inpatient units, medical or psychiatric, we actually also um, do some follow-up if the veteran doesn't have a provider. So that's where suicide prevention kind of tries to fill the gaps for those veterans who don't have a provider to be connected with. Yep. Well, ladies, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I'll pretty much wrap it up here for the the podcast today. Um, Make sure you join us in two weeks. We will be uh, back with the next Nine Line podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Las Vegas VA. Thanks for listening.